Hey, good afternoon, friends. Happy Friday. Rob Breckenridge with the afternoons on QR Calgary, 107.3 FM, 770 AM. You can reach us here this afternoon, 403-974-8255. Some significant developments uh, in the Middle East today. Uh, a cease, well, a pause in the fighting. I guess we're not calling it a ceasefire, but a cessation of hostilities for now between Israel and Hamas. And that has allowed for the release of some of these hostages. 13 hostages have now been released from Hamas captivity, are back in Israel. Global's Mike Armstrong with the latest. First hostages to be released crossed through the Rafa border crossing at about 5.53 p.m. local time. These are images being shared on social media believed to show the convoy carrying hostages. This is before they left Gaza. People can be heard in the background cheering as the convoy passed. It was also cheering as the trucks crossed into Egypt. The hostages are being moved from the Rafah crossing through Egypt to the east and then into Israel through another border crossing. Now, there has been activity all day at this prison in the West Bank, north of Jerusalem. Israel is set to release 39 prisoners it's holding in return for the first 13 hostages. The temporary pause in fighting between Hamas and the Israeli military is holding. It went into effect at 7 a.m. local time. There was some gunfire and rockets in the first 20 minutes, but it's been calm since then. Another big development today is the release of a group of hostages that wasn't expected. According to Qatar, which worked as a mediator in this agreement, 10 Thai citizens and one Filipino have also been handed over to the Red Cross. Embassy officials in Egypt will pick them up. Now, of the 240 hostages believed to be taken by Hamas, at least 25 are believed to be Thai citizens. That country also had 32 citizens killed in the October 7th attacks. Mike Armstrong, Global News, Jerusalem. So with some relief, some celebration even in Israel today as these hostages were returned, but with the knowledge that there's still many more Israelis who are being held captive by Hamas. And in many instances, their status remains unclear. Israel is, is paying a price to get these hostages home. They've agreed to release a number of Palestinian prisoners. And of course, this pause in fighting is going to allow Hamas an opportunity to regroup. But it was clearly a priority amongst Israeli citizens to make sure these hostages are returned. So 13 are now back today. So joining us to talk about the significance uh, of these developments, where all of this goes from here. Very pleased to welcome to the program uh, here this afternoon, uh, Dr. Dotana Russo, uh, who's with Southern Alberta Institute of Technology, a course leader in philosophy, but was born and raised in Israel, a former legal advisor of the Israeli parliament and a criminal prosecutor in Israel, actually lost a nephew. Uh, on the front lines uh, of this war very early on. Uh, Dr. Rosso, thank you so much for joining us here today. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. I- I'm wondering if you could speak to the, the dilemma here for the Israelis, uh, the priority of getting these hostages home, but but the price that is paid in doing so, and also the you know whether this incentivizes future hostage-taking. Yes, definitely. There's, this is uh, this involves with a great dilemma because, on the one hand, uh, the Israelis are very happy to uh, receive those uh, hostages. We should remember that uh, 13 of those hostages were released, among them little children and elderly people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, this is obviously something that any human being would find to be. Uh, 
uh, a, happy, a happy event. Uh, on the other side, uh, Israelis are very much concerned because of the uh, because of few reasons. First of all, um, this is only a very small group out of the many hostages, uh, 241 approximately. We don't even know for sure because Hamas does not provide any concrete uh, information regarding this. The second concern is that uh, this deal is something that is being done with a terror organization, probably one of the worst kinds uh, in history, actually. Uh, may I, should, I may remind uh, your uh, listeners, uh, the audience, that um, um, this uh, started on October 7th when the Hamas terror organization launched its uh, attack on Israeli civilians, mm-hmm. and he killed uh, 1,200 uh, people, including uh, little children, uh, elderly people, Holocaust survival, survival. not only that he killed them, uh, but also the way it was done. It was truly horrific. Uh, there were be babies, uh, beheading babies. They burned families alive. The conditions of the bodies were so bad that until today, until recent day, uh, it's not yet um, uh, finalized the exact number of the victims and, and their identity because the conditions of the bodies were so, uh, so horrible. Uh, they also committed sexual offenses. So uh, this is, the, as I said, the, the probably the worst kind of a terrorist organization. And just the idea that we're having a kind of a deal with them, which uh, gives them some kind of legitimacy, uh, is something which is very uh, hard to, uh, to uh, accept. And as you mentioned also um, uh, in your question, uh, this may also encourage uh, the Hamas organization to commit uh, such a... Such, um, um, terror attacks and kidnapping uh, again because it uh, turned out to be worthwhile for him. Mm-hmm. Right. And, yes. So, you know, the, the I mean, is this to be viewed as a success on Israel's part than getting these hostages released? And, and certainly Israel has made some some progress in the military operation and, and they may lose some of that progress in, in this pause. So how do we view this? Yes, that's another thing. The uh, Hamas was uh, very anxious to get to ceasefire because he's uh, under a uh, very uh, uh, heavy pressure, uh, military pressure, and he needs the time to reorganize and maybe to uh, 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 get ammunition, ammunition and so on. So this obviously, Israel is allowing this organization to um, to position himself in a better uh, in a better place, and that is uh, that is another concern because this may translate eventually uh, to the killing of more uh, soldiers and more civilians. So um, th- this, is, this is really one of the hardest uh, decisions that uh, any politician, any uh, leader can make. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, you know, again, since we're talking about little babies, uh, the, uh, the, there were 39 toddlers who were kidnapped, among them 10-month-old baby. Just imagine this. They slaughtered the parents of those toddlers, and after that they took them as hostages, 10 months and three years old babies. They put them under tunnels for the last 42 days. Nobody knows what's going on with them. They do not allow any contact with them. The Red Cross is not allowed to see them. And we know, of course, that this organization, which is really the, uh, such, such, cru- such a cruel organization, um, it's not as if they are being kept by, you know, by... Uh, by a state. Uh, so every day, every day counts. And, uh, and the idea that those children and those people suffer the potential abuse, physical abuse and torture or whatever that would be of those people is really something that uh, no, one can, no, can, no one can live with, you know. So the pressure and was extremely high to, um, to uh, reach some compromise with them regarding this. 
Right. So what happens next? And what about these these other hostages? That's uh, that's a great question as well. Uh, of course, Israel, the Israeli government stated very clearly that there are two main aims to this war in Gaza. Uh, one of them is to eliminate Hamas. And the second is to uh, um, uh, bring all the hostages home. Now, this is not going to be an easy task because uh, Hamas is uh, going to do is about to do anything in its power to prevent uh, this from happening. Or, for the very least, uh, the prices that you will ask uh, are are basically things that Israel would not be able to uh, to accept. So, I think, unfortunately, it's probably going to take uh, uh, quite a long time until this uh, will be resolved. Uh, one of the, um, as the, as the Prime Minister of Israel and the Minister of Defense uh, stated many times uh, in the last 40 days, that two, these two aims are very much connected. Um, probably the only way or the most realistic way to get these hostages out is to eliminate Hamas. And that is why this war is, uh, is about to continue just after the ceasefire will end. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I, I think this is now a different situation where, you know, th- that there have been skirmishes with Hamas in the past, but uh, th- this is different. There, there certainly seems to be a willingness now on Israel's part to, to see this through and, and to remove that, that threat in Hamas. Definitely. You know, I'm an Israeli. I was raised and born. I've never uh, seen my uh, uh, the citizens of Israel so united as they are now. Really, it's like uh, there's, a, there's almost a complete agreement among Israelis that there's no other way but to eliminate this organization, which not only committed those atrocities, um, which is, again, just to get, um, to get an idea of the scale of the event. In terms of in per capita, it is equal to uh, the massacring of 51 thousand Americans in just one day. Yeah. Uh, September 11, which is one of the most you know, uh, uh, horrific events uh, in the last few uh, decades, uh, there were near, less than 3,000 people killed. And, uh, and uh, in this event, again, per capita is equal to 51,000 uh, people who were massacred and another 10,000 people who were uh, kidnapped. So, um, so in that sense, uh, Israel is very much united. And not only, again, that they committed those atrocities, the Hamas spokesman, and anyone, any of your listeners can just check, check it out on YouTube and other social medias. Uh, he he uh, stated very clearly that the October 7 event was just the first, and there will be a second, a third, and a million. This is a right. quote. There's going to be a million. So this is what we're facing. We're facing, the, as I said, an organization, terror organization, that there's absolutely no way, no other way, but to fight it until, until the end. We'll leave it there for now. Uh, Dotan, thank you so much for, for your perspective on all of this today. appreciate you making some time for us here. Thank you for sure. Thank all the best, sir. Uh, that's Dr. Dotan uh, Russo, who's a um, course leader in philosophy uh, currently at SAIT here in Calgary. But as mentioned, was born and raised in Israel, former legal advisor at the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, was a criminal prosecutor in Israel as well. So some perspective on, on what's happened today, where we've got 13 hostages who have been released. Now, this uh, initial deal calls for the release of up to 50 Israeli hostages. Uh, so we'll have to wait and see how this unfolds in the coming days. But of course, there are still many more hostages who remain. Uh, but Israel did release the names and ages of those released today. And yes, you've got uh, two young siblings, Raz and Aviv Ketz, who are four and two years old. Emilia Aloni, five years old. And then you've got uh, the other end, Yafa Adar is 85 years old. Uh, Chana Perry, 79 years old. Uh, so children, toddlers, elderly 
being held hostage uh, for over a month by this terrorist organization. Now, the, the Israel is paying a price to get these hostages released. Not just the pause in fighting gives Hamas an opportunity to regroup, but the release of Palestinian prisoners, not hostages that Israel is holding, but prisoners, those who have been charged and convicted of crimes in Israel, crimes like shooting and stabbing police officers. So Israel has agreed, and this is the leverage that Hamas has here, Israel has agreed to release 150 prisoners in exchange for 50 hostages. So there's a price being paid by Israel here. There was a, a jaw-dropping moment yesterday on Sky News in the UK. Uh, and one of the hosts on Sky News was interviewing Israeli government spokesman Elon Levy. And, and actually implied uh, that this price that Israel is willing to pay to get these hostages home to release these prisoners was somehow Israel's fault. I was speaking to a hostage negotiator this morning. He made the comparison between the 50 hostages, hostages that Hamas has promised um, promised to release, as opposed to the 150 prisoners that are Palestinians that Israel has said that it will release. And he made the comp comparison between the numbers and the fact that does Israel not think that Palestinian lives are valued as highly as Israeli lives? That is an astonishing accusation. If we could release one prisoner for every one hostage, we would obviously do that. We're operating in horrific circumstances. We're not choosing to release these prisoners who have blood on their hands. We are talking about people who have been convicted of stabbing and shooting attacks. Notice the question of proportionality doesn't interest Palestinian supporters when they are able to get more of their prisoners out. But really, it is outrageous to suggest that the fact that we are willing to release prisoners who are convicted of terrorism offenses, more of them than we are getting our own innocent children back, somehow suggests that we don't care about Palestinian lives. Really, that's a disgusting accusation. Well, and that's putting it mildly. To suggest that this is Israel somehow suggesting that a, a, an Israeli life is worth three Palestinians, it's the other way around, if anything. Why isn't Hamas doing a one-for-one -one exchange then? Why is Hamas demanding three prisoners released for every Israeli hostage? And why is Hamas able to draw an equivalence here uh, between innocent children and elderly uh, versus individuals who are behind bars because they were convicted of crimes in Israel? So just, if, if nothing else, an enormously stupid question. Uh, but I think it reveals a lot in the process. Listen, you can reach us here this afternoon, 403-974-8255, 974-TALK. We have a lot to get to here on a Friday afternoon. My name is Rob Breckenridge. We are back with more right after this. Welcome back. So yesterday, Toronto police announced uh, some arrests uh, with regard to some anti-Semitic vandalism uh, at an indigo store in the city. Toronto's police chief, Demkew, uh, had some troubling things to say about the level of hate crimes and anti-Semitism they're seeing in that city. Anti-Semitism makes up 40% of all of these occurrences. That's 129 of 323 total. These alarming trends in our city, our city, which prides itself in our diversity, are the likes of which we have never seen before. To combat these deeply concerning issues, we have committed a significant number of resources to address these overall increases, as well as every category of hate. So as mentioned, Indigo, an Indigo store was targeted for vandalism. Red paint being thrown on the building, uh, posters were being glued onto the walls. 
accusing uh, Heather Reisman, the founder of Indigo, of uh, supporting genocide. Uh, Heather Reisman is Jewish. So I guess that's maybe why she's been singled out here. So 11 people have been charged. And it's not just, you know, young radicals. Uh, these are otherwise, you would think, serious individuals. Uh, academics, paralegal teachers uh, were among those arrested. Now, here's the kicker here. Uh, there's a group called the uh, Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East. There was actually a protest outside the police station because these individuals were arrested. So this group says they're appalled by the actions of Toronto police. They say Indigo is a long-standing target of the movement to boycott Israel and suggest that protesting Israel is a legitimate form of expression. Again, the building was vandalized. Yet they want police to drop these spurious, uh, spurious charges, they say, against these activists. This is somehow a legitimate form of protest? On what planet? Certainly not here. Now, something else in Toronto, too, uh, and, and just like Heather Reisman's being singled in for being Jewish, so, too, is Josh Matlow. He's a city councillor, ran for mayor, held a fundraiser this week to pay off some campaign debts. He's Jewish. He's left-wing progressive, member of Toronto's city council. And there were protests at his event. <laughs> Why does a Toronto City Councilor have blood on his hands other than the fact that he is Jewish? And if that weren't enough, here was the moment where two young men walked out of the fundraiser. Now, these protesters were, were shouting at, heckling those who were going in and coming out of this fundraiser as though somehow they've done something wrong. Two young men, one of whom is wearing a kippah, so is obviously then uh, Jewish. And these protesters clearly picked up on that. What the hell? So two young men, one of whom is, is wearing a kippah and God, I mean, it, it must be frightening right now uh, to be out in public. You know, and, and to be Jewish and to be known and seen as Jewish, if that's what you're going to encounter. How many kids did you kill today? Well, because you're wearing a kippah? Or how about this? There was a black woman who attended that fundraiser. And here's what the protesters had to say to her. Stop funding the genocide. Shame on you. You're a woman of color. Malcolm X is not actually looking down at you right now. Malcolm X is looking down on you right now? What the hell does that mean? So a, a, a woman of color is not allowed to attend a fundraiser for a progressive Jewish member of city council? What does any of this have to do with the Middle East? Like, this is so bizarre. It's one thing to disagree with, with Israel's approach or to even protest that. But this isn't about Israel. You're targeting uh, Jewish uh, municipal politicians or Jewish-owned or Jewish-run businesses, that's something much different and, and much more sinister and very disturbing to see.
Well, the federal government has certainly tried to ramp up the focus on housing, recognizing the situation Canada faces and, and the level of concern in the general public. We've seen a number of announcements with the Housing Accelerator Fund. We had, of course, the federal fall economic statement earlier this week with uh, another increased focus on housing policy. But uh, is it all enough to make a difference? Well, our next guest suggests that, you know, maybe not, that all of this uh, amounts to potentially just a, a drop in the bucket in terms of what Canada actually needs in terms of housing supply. Joining us for more, I'm very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Craig Alexander, uh, former chief economist at Deloitte Canada, the Conference Board of Canada, TD Bank, is now president of Alexander Economic Views. Much more at alexandereconomicviews.com. Craig, so great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Oh, it's a real pleasure. So when we look at all of these announcements, I mean, it's it certainly it, it's clear that the federal government is trying to to play some catch up here. But I don't know. Is it too pessimistic to say it's it's too little too late? What's your assessment? I think that's that's a fair assessment. I think the, the real challenge is that if you actually look at the deterioration in housing affordability that we've seen in this country, it really started in the early 2000s. And so we've we've it, it's taken us the better part of two decades to get to the the affordability crisis that we we have today mm-hmm. and the government you know various you know all levels of government are now paying more attention to this issue and it's not a surprise and it's because governments don't lead they follow and so when you when you hear you know public opinion polls saying that housing affordability is the foremost concern about you know of Canadians, it provokes a political response, and governments suddenly become very interested in trying to address the concerns that voters have. The problem is the magnitude of the challenge that mm-hmm. has that's confronting us in terms of the 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 the, the relatively high cost to own or or rent relative to the incomes that Canadians have. Right. So you talk about the origins uh, or the roots of this crisis going back maybe two decades. What what's shifted then? I mean, you know, to what do we attribute this to? Well, I, I think it was it, it it you know it's it's like a you know it's like a a, a, a a slow dripping tap, right? It was you know it takes it takes time, but eventually the 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 problem will manifest itself, right? And and I, I think it became, you know, I think Canadians have been concerned about this issue for 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 quite quite a while, and in fact, the the government of Canada launched its first foray, foray into address the issue back in 2017 with the launch of the Canada Canada's National Housing Strategy, which was a 10-year plan that was ultimately supposed to double the amount of construction taking place in in the country. But if you actually look at what it's, what it's accomplished in the fall economic statement, it actually told us exactly, you know, how, how, how many additional new homes were created because of the national housing strategy. And the answer was about 152,000. And that's over a six year period. Well, we, we as a country build about 250,000 homes uh, a year. So 150,000 over an addition over six years is really like increasing supply by you know close to you know a little over ten percent, right? Right? Not 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 doubling, and the Canada Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation has done projections that ask the question, you know, 
how much would we need to build in order to get the affordability that we had in the early 2000s? And their, their estimate is 3.5 million, million homes uh, beyond what we already are planning to build. Like, in yeah. other words, <laughs> if we keep building at like the 250,000 a year, we actually need to build an extra 500,000 every year on top of that to actually achieve the affordability target or get affordably back to where it was in the early 2000s. And the government likes to quote that number. And I've got a real problem with that because there is no way we are ever, there's no way we are going to increase home construction by 200%. No. You know, nor are we going to break, be able to bring in the, the million construction workers that would be required to make that, to make that, that happen. So I really think that we, but you know, I I I do think increasing supply is a big part of the solution. But the measures that we've got at this point are going to have a you know a modest to moderate increase in supply. It's it's not going to address the two decade problem that's developed, and that means the governments governments are going to need to think more about the demand side as well. They're going to need to think about. You know, do the immigration targets make sense? They are going to need to think about, you know, are there other incentives that you can put in place and shift some of the um, investor uh, investor owned properties into into the hands of like making, you know, making them more suitable for for, for renters, you know, or shifting them into um, a stock available, a pool available for, for buyers. We're also going to need to really do a great deal more than what's already happened on the supply side. And I, I do think that the emphasis should probably be on the supply side. It's just the measures we've got right now would suggest to me that, you know, next six years, we could see maybe, you know, 400,000 additional units getting added to the stock. But that's 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 only a small fraction of what we need. Right. And again, so it's not to say that the policies that have been announced so far are bad or useless, but it is just it's, no. it's not enough. So realistically, if it were truly, OK, all hands on deck, this is crisis. We are in full crisis mode. Like what, what's a reasonable expectation for what that kind of mobilization could possibly achieve? Because yeah. you're right. I mean, you know, the, the CMHC targets are probably still unrealistic. Yeah, I, I mean, I, one of the things I, I've, I've been encouraging the government to do is to just stop making reference to that number. I don't actually think any Canadian expects we're going to go back to the affordability we had in the early 2000s, right? So mm -hmm. I think we need to, like, I think governments need to have a more transparent and more realistic dialogue with, with Canadians, right? I don't think governments want to be able to say, to, they don't want to say to Canadians, hey, we we were asleep at the at the wheel, and this 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 huge problem has now manifested itself, and and we have limited ability to actually deal with it in the short term, right? No politician is ever going to say that to to voter, voters, even though that's that's the reality. I do think we actually do need an all hands on deck approach, though, which which governments are paying more attention to this issue, but they're you know when we start to see issues like the like the provinces complaining that the federal government is engaging directly with municipalities around increasing supply, that's, that's not helpful, right? In point of fact, the provinces should be working with the federal government 
and the municipalities to say, right, we all know we need to increase supply and we need to increase it greatly. You know, let's get rid of the barriers. Let's let's get rid of a lot of the regulatory restrictions and, you know, things like zoning that are actually inhibiting the ability of builders to 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 build product and and get supply up. So I think we could do I, I think there is scope to do a lot more. It's just realistically, we're not going to return affordability to where it was in the early 2000s. But I think from a point of view of most Canadians, you know, at a minimum, you want to see the trend improving. Right. So we launched yeah. You know, the federal government launched the National Housing Strategy in 2017, six years ago, and affordability today is far worse than it was in 2017. So what, what do we need to do now? And the answer is, okay, we need to get affordability improving, right, so that it's on a, you know, an improving track. And, and we need to basically treat this like the crisis it is and really ratchet up the the supply of homes so that we can actually address the underlying issue. And like I said, you also have to think about, you know, it can't, it isn't just going to be solved by supply, right? You, you also need to think about, you know, other policies like, like your immigration target levels that, you know, we still want to be bringing in immigrants. We, we, we do, Um, we're going to need them, right? Baby boomers are aging. They're leaving the labor force. Um, You know, a lot of the analysis, I do a lot of the modeling work I do. You actually need the immigrants to be paying the to be paying taxes to governments in order to pay for things like the health care that older Canadians are going to require. So you need immigration, but maybe you need to adjust the amount you're bringing in if it's creating additional strain or until you actually get supply increasing at a more substantial rate. So I think what we really need is a holistic approach, look at supply and demand. And I think we need all of the governments working together on this file. And I think the reality is Canadians are going to be disappointed by what the government's announced in terms of the impact it's going to have on housing markets. So I think Canadians will be yelling even louder about housing affordability to politicians, and maybe that will eventually incent a change in, in policy. Yeah, the demand side stuff is, is, I think, a lot less politically palatable, uh, which is maybe why governments are, are reluctant. But, you know, it's got to be a part of the equation. I wonder, too, I mean, you know, if, if we're in an era of higher, high-ish mortgage rates, d- does any of that go to, to any degree to, to reduce demand? It, 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 it does, but it's, it's, it's a, there's a two-sided coin to that, right? So yeah. the, the higher... The higher interest rates, right, are are going to are to reduce demand, but they're also leading to weaker weaker construction, right? Like if you actually look at over the last over the last year, the housing market has cooled down, and yes, housing starts have housing starts have 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 been resilient in the sense that they haven't been falling a great deal, but they also haven't been rising. Mm-hmm. Right. And so and and the you know, eventually we we are going to get to a point where the Bank of Canada starts to cut interest rates. And that will be, you know, early part of or I expect that to be sort of the second half of next year. But when interest rates start to 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 come down, um, you're 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 still going to you're still going to have interest rates higher than they were in the past. 
and it's still going to be an enormous burden on Canadians. In fact, this is this is one of the the, the strange things about you know when I when I when I look at the fall economic statement, the federal government has chapter number one is housing affordability. But if you actually look at the federal government's program spending growth over the next six years, they're actually not helping the Bank of Canada get inflation down. And so as a result, that's keeping mortgage rates higher for longer. And that's actually the biggest problem on the affordability front that we have at the moment, right? That that mortgage rates are 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 punitively high for for potential buyers. So yes, that that will help to reduce demand. But it's also the, those higher rates are actually causing part of the erosion on housing affordability. And two-thirds, something in the neighborhood of two-thirds of mortgages are going to renew in 2024, 2025, 2026. Right. And you're looking at your your mortgage carrying cost going up by, on average, it's not, it's, you know, obviously it all depends on the value of your home relative to your income and things like that. But on average, you're looking at, you know, most the average Canadian, the average for Canadians would be like an increase of close to $950 a month. Wow. And that, you know, Canadians, most Canadian families don't save that much in a month. Okay. Right. So, so the, the, the fact that governments are continuing to, you know, grow their program spending at a, at quite a strong pace, um, is contributing to the higher for longer interest rate environment. We'll see where it all goes from here. Uh, you've got a piece up uh, on all of this uh, this week at theglobeandmail.com and much more is mentioned, alexandereconomicviews.com. Greg, really appreciate the insight uh, on all of this. Thank you so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.